Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pantasocracy. And this is your host, Miss Pantagrace. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for that gorgeous welcome. When a girl goes to this much trouble, it is nice to be appreciated. Well, welcome to my parlour of Pantasocracy, a place where all are equal and where I promise to bring you a cabaret of conversations. That is bright people doing interesting things. A conversation for and about contemporary Ireland. And this week, I have brought together a talented bunch, a filmmaker, a visual artist, two incredible singers, and a woman who thinks nothing of literally running around the world. First up, we have filmmaker Vivian de Corsi. She's a corporate lawyer who has escaped the courts to pursue her passion in both film and the environment. And her new film is Dare to be Wild and is in cinemas this week. Beside Vivian is artist Jim Fitzpatrick. Uh, Jim, can I call you legendary? Or does that sound like you're already dead? Jim is the creator of the iconic Che Guevara poster image and a man who counted Phil Linnet as a friend from his work with Thin Lizzy. Next to Jim is another Dublin-born singer, uh, Shaz Oye, who, like Phil Linnet, knows what it's like to grow up both black and Irish. And also with us today is the utterly amazing Sinead Kane. She's an ultra-runner who not only runs an unreasonable amount of marathons, but she does it blind. And also in the house today is the stunning musician Loa. Loa's grown up between Ireland and Sierra Leone and mixes her beautiful music with life as a pharmacist. Now, if they haven't earned your applause, I don't know what will. But first, I get to hold the floor with what we have been calling, surprise, surprise, the Panty Monologues. So one of the many things I'd like to suggest we might get into today is um, people who left sort of an influence on you when you were younger that you think maybe you either blame or credit for where you are today. I grew up in a very small town in the west of Ireland, and there is a lot to be said for growing up in Ballinrobe, County Mayo. But the one thing that Mayo didn't have when I was growing up there was glamour. Now, it had grass and cows and fish and football, but no glamour. Of course, glamour was in short supply in 1970s Ireland anyway, and what little of it there was rarely made it past the Shannon. And it usually came from abroad. You know, when Mrs. Nixon, the wife of the disgraced president, came to Ballinrobe in a helicopter and shook hands with people at the local agricultural show, the whole town practically had a stroke. <laughs> she was like something out of a film. But glamour came to our house once every few years in the shape of my Auntie Cuey and my mother's glamorous younger sister. She even had that very glamorous name, Cuey. Actually, her name was Columba, but everyone shortened it to Q or Cuey for some reason. And she was gorgeous. She had this rich, husky voice, very redolent of Catherine Hepburn. And she had wanted to be an actress and did a bit on radio, on RTE, but mostly she was just beautiful. Seven different men proposed to her, and in fact, my mother met my father when he came to the house to take Auntie Cuey out. <laughs> but Auntie Cuey said no to all of her suitors until a wealthy American, an ex-naval officer, proposed. Now, he was 25 years her senior, but he was dashing and exciting, and in grey 1950s Ireland, he was in technicolour, and he took her to America. Now, when I was growing up in 1970s Ireland, America still had a real glamour about it. You know, it was this sort of faraway, exotic place we'd probably never see, where Mary Tyler Moore and Charlie's Angels lived with giant refrigerators and bouncing hair. And Auntie Cuey would arrive to Mayo with her husky drawl in a swirl of beige pantsuits and menthol cigarettes. 
cigarettes with mint in them. <laughs> and the glamour would almost knock me over. You know, she would smoke and drawl and sing, W-O-M-A-N, I'll say it again. And she'd, you know, clank her bracelets as she'd take out gifts that were wrapped, you know, like in American movies, with shiny wrapping paper and glittery bows. And inside, we would discover all of these new and amazing things, you know, Pez dispensers, you know, magic tricks, a jumper with a hood on it. <laughs> You know, America had everything, you know, we'd never seen the like. The whole town was talking about us and our jumpers with hoods on them. You know, all of the other kids wanted an Auntie Cuey. I wanted to be Auntie Cuey. You know, she was like nobody else I'd ever met. She was exotic and glamorous and different. You know, she was like a character from a movie, a 3D emissary from a 2D world I'd only ever seen in movies or in books. But Auntie Cuey was flesh and blood, undeniable, tangible evidence of this big world out there, you know, somewhere past Roscommon. And I feverishly imagined this other world and fevered to be part of it, you know, this bigger, brighter world full of new and different things, you know, exciting and full of possibilities, you know, where people wore jumpers with hoods on them. I suspect that everybody has some sort of anti-QE in their lives, not necessarily a relative or maybe not somebody who influenced in the same way that anti-QE influenced me, but somebody who's very formative. And when you look back, you sort of recognize it. Jim, is there somebody like that in your life? I had a mother who was like your anti-QE, except I had to live with her all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suspect some of anti-QE's glamour like, might have rubbed off. She, she dressed like the queen. She was a millinery buyer, a fashionista. And fortunately, we were impoverished by my father leaving us, who was very wealthy and left as my mother said, was a what, two and six in her arse pockets. What age were you when your father left? Five. Oh, he left. He didn't die. He kept going. But <laughs> He married bigamously, actually, but that's another story. You know, I only found that out a couple of years ago. Oh, my God. But anyway, my mother was one of these glamorous fashionistas, and we lived in Glasnevin in a, you know, one of those red brick houses like Carnation Street. Yeah. And she swept in and out every day like the queen. And did other people recognize your mother as being different? Or? Oh, totally. And yeah. my aunts even. I was really educated by my aunts and a kind of a mad granny who wasn't my granny. She was my mother's granny, but she inherited me and I inherited her. Yeah. So she was the fear gale. She taught me everything about Ireland, yeah. right? All the nationalism, all the weird stuff that had happened from Cromwell backwards and onwards. But my mother was an empire loyalist. So <laughs> at Christmas, we would go upstairs and listen to the Queen's speech and she taught me to speak properly. But when I spoke properly, I got the crap beaten out of myself. So I learned to talk like that. You know, hey, yeah. there, where? You know, and you learn all these things when you're growing up. But you I do. always love fashion. Every Wednesday, my mother would have a half day after school in St. Pat's from Condra, get the bus in, and I would join herself and her model friends who <laughs> all sat in Bewley's opposite Macy's where she worked, opposite of George. Yeah. And I would feast on the bits the models left behind. Models I learned very early in life. <laughs> We'll order a cream bun and only eat half. Yes, they leave a lot behind. <laughs> well, it's funny you say because um, it turns out that you and I, Jim, have lots in common. One being that we went to the same you know, secondary school, Gormanston and County Meath. And um, you say that about your changing your accent because I grew up in Mayo, but then I went right. to school in Gormanston. That was my grandmother lived in Betty's town. And people often accuse me of having a fake accent or, you know, this mid-Atlantic accent or something. But the only time I have ever consciously attempted to change something about the way I speak is in Gormanston, I consciously stopped saying the word ye. Ye. Because <laughs> East Coast boys used to, you know, really of slag course. me hard yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, ye marked you out as a culture. I think I learned in Gormanston to be myself. I stopped doing accents. Yeah. <laughs> I just spoke like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Vivian, do you have... You know, uh, someone 
that you look back on? And well, think? I have a lot of people I look back on, but I have probably more somebody I look forward to and with. And probably if you spend the last 12 years of your life, as I have, in, engaged in the lunacy of making the film Dare to be Wild, I would imagine the person that probably inspired me was the true life character of that person, who's a young woman by the name of Mary Reynolds, who is a landscape designer of wild nature. And when I came back from being in corporate finance, living in a high rise in America, I was absolutely desperate to get back into the landscape of my ancestors, which is in deep, deep West Cork, where all things are lush and green and not very much like a high rise in Chicago. And so uh, one day I sent out a design brief. I had a little bit more money then than I have now. And the next thing, this young woman arrives and she was dressed from head to foot in green tulle on the building site, wearing a building hat and a big pair of enormous green boots and a whole load of attitude. She was wearing that as well. And she kind of looked at me like I was a corporate lawyer. And I'm like, but I'm a creative in my (laughs) heart and soul. Don't judge me by what I'm wearing. (laughs) And about six months later, she sent back this extraordinary design and in the course of that she would stay a lot and she told me her extraordinary story of winning the Olympics of gardening we call it the Chelsea Flower Show gold medal you know and Prince Charles uh, got the silver in the same competition so I would say I'm very influenced by Mary because I think when we see a young woman strive to do something so extraordinary as she did and kind of take on the world and and win it gives us all the confidence to you know maybe change our habits and have bees in the garden with clover lawns well now Shaz you grew up very far from a hedgerow it was the north wall and it was I had a sort of an odd upbringing because my mother was fairly young when she had me and I was born into this sort of homogenous monotheistic sort of society yeah. as Ireland was yeah. at the time but our little row of houses it was this row of three up uh, two down red bricked houses in the north wall sort of between where the point depot was and the National Convention Centre. And it was the parish of St. Barnabas. So the place was uh, a sort of a little Protestant parish surrounded by a sort of sea of Catholicism. Mm. Although we were Catholics and many of the residents were Catholics, it was mixed. It was a a sectarian mix on this row, which was really unusual at the time. And my mother had to go out and work to support me because at the time there was no such thing as welfare or single parents allowance. I was illegitimate at the time, so I was a bastard and that was perfectly acceptable to call children bastards and to, to differentiate. So she had to go out and work. So she had very little to do with raising me, but the older people around her took me on. So she was really lucky that her mother didn't throw her out when yeah. she had me, because obviously when the baby came out and it sort of wasn't white, you know, I mean, it, was, it was it was a big surprise. It was a beautiful um, coffee colour. It was a milky coffee colour. So she lived with her mother and her father and he was a drover. And I remember, you know, he'd be taking the cows and, and, the, and the sheep and whatever to the boats and you'd see them charging down the street. and It was a cobbled street. So Mabel, my grandmother, was, was a big influence. But next door to her, there was the sort of more middle class woman who was a, a supervisor in a factory um, and her husband was a mechanic. I know, knew her as Auntie May and herself and her husband wanted to adopt me. So she became my nanny. Uh, my mother didn't want to give me up and it was probably the best thing she ever did and the, one of the wisest decisions she ever made. And so I lived between my grandmother's house and Auntie May's house and these older people who were, I mean, generations older than me, they raised me. And when I look back on that time and I think about them, I like to think that, you know, nobody told them the war was over. I'm talking about the First World War because, <laughs> because they, they lived in this bizarre bubble. Yeah. And they, they sort of raised me the way they had been raised. Yeah. So I was constantly, as I grew up, out of step 
with my peers. I mean, we had one tap in the house in this pantry, one cold tap with no heating. You know, the toilet was the outhouse. It was that sort of, you know, there was a big tin bath God, I think hanging up on the wall. You as a 90-year-old, you know, and yeah, she's actually vibrant and young. Yeah. But actually, you know, it's funny because I live in the north inner city yeah. now and... Um, I've been in Edinburgh for the last while at yeah. the festival and Edinburgh is super white. Yeah. And actually yesterday when I arrived back, I suddenly think, God, I have missed seeing brown and black faces. I yeah. underappreciate mm-hmm. the, the north inner city for that until yeah. I got yeah. to Edinburgh. <laughs> now, Sh- Sinead, um, you grew up in a, if I can put this, your house is visually impaired. Yeah, so yeah. I suppose my role models are people who inspired me growing up would be, say, my parents because they taught me from a very young age to self-accept and just get on with it. And in my household, there was no use in your disability to get out a job. So like if the Hoover needed done, well, you get down on your knees and you feel your way along. So you feel your way along to feel the dirt. But, and you have 5% vision, is that right? So what, are you pressed nose distance away from the TV screen? Uh, yeah, so that's how I discovered I was visually impaired. So four years of age, myself and my sister were fighting to see uh, cartoons. And I just leant up against it. I was pushing her out of the way because two of us are visually impaired. So that would be the fight to get to see this little box of a screen. like So... Um, so leant too close, nose tipped the screen, got static, fell back, was crying because just of the fact that saying to myself, well, how come I have to look at things up close? And then my parents just said, well, this is it. Like, this is how your life is always going to be. Like, get on with it. Do, do you still crawl around on the floor trying no, to take I your don't. clean? <laughs> <laughs> no, I employ uh, a person. <laughs> <laughs> and then Loa, it's funny because um, you know, on this show... One of the things we've been doing a lot is bringing artists and scientists together. And actually, this show, we don't have a full-on I'm working every day as a scientist, except for you. <laughs> because despite um, the fact that you're here as a beautiful musician, you're actually a pharmacist. This is true, yes. And I have my parents to credit for that. Um, I think my first goal in life was to become Kylie Minogue. <laughs> Good goal. Still Good goal. working on that one, yeah. <laughs> but I, I showed a great love and interest in the sciences, as did all my siblings. So my parents very swiftly were like, right, we need to get in with these kids and start programming them now to make sure they're set up for anything that life can bring. Because they're both people who've moved a lot in their youth and had many careers and stuff. So they kind of met our curiosity with a lot of encouragement. So I was definitely not a particularly devoted pharmacy student. I tried to leave a few times and my classmates talked me back with literally figures and were like, Sally, like, you don't know how singing is going to go. Please just do this next lab and you'll be fine. So I got through the degree and loved it uh, in the end. And I actually adore the job. I actually love chatting and, and caring for people. And you have such a direct communication with your community when you're a local chemist. It's almost undermined this ability to just change people's day their week potentially their year and you're healing in a way in in kind of a more relaxed environment than a hospital so I actually see a lot of similarities with what the healing process of delivering a song can be you know you can hear a song and just go oh my god something in my soul just went back into its place there and I don't know how they did that but they did it with their frequencies and I see science and art all as kind of a bunch of frequencies and chemicals and yeah it's all kind of mushed together in a big nebula in my head and heart so I don't really see myself differently in the roles and some of um, my closest friends who are say amazing composers or violinists are 
studied maths. I mean, they're completely aligned. And all of us are all of those things. Like every child is interested in painting and building blocks. Like, you know, we're all kind of engineers and poets, but we we start specialising at a certain point and feeling like if we're not specialist enough, then we're doing something wrong. Um, So it took me a while to accept myself in this way um but also um, my siblings my sister is an astrophysicist and a musician as well and my brother is an engineer and a rapper <laughs> and, uh, and um, my younger brother is well he's just all art but um yeah so you know it's for me it's just like following your curiosity and if you have a penchant for something and you want to develop a skill just do it and I, do, I try not to question the process too much. That phrase you've just used, to follow your curiosity, is also something that everybody here has in common. Like, Jim, you first were in the advertising business. I worked in advertising for about seven years, loved every minute. I earned more money than I've ever earned since. <laughs> <laughs> and I left it when I was the top of the tree, thinking it's all going to continue like that, but no. All downhill after that. And I've had to fight my way back. It's just, art is cyclical. You're fashionable, yeah. then you're unfashionable. Yeah. If you live as long as I have, you, you go through them all. But no, I've been very lucky. I, all I ever want to do in the morning is get up and paint or draw. Mm. Simple as that. And, you know, I get my bike cycle, have a whole coffee up and hold, come back, and then I start work. And I work about half ten at night when mm. I switch off. But I need to be doing something creative. I go nuts, and I love it. And my kids yeah. are all the same, thank God, you know. Well, you know, I think that is the one thing. If you are doing what you love for a living, you don't mind doing it into your 80s or whatever. Oh, you know? no. And you give half it away anyway because you're just so pleased to be even involved in some yeah. of these issues. But it's great to be able to contribute to society artistically in a way yeah. and motivate people to change views, change direction. I grew up in a very limited Irish Catholic uh, state and now we have a, you know, multiculturalism is something I dreamt of, never thought I'd see. I mean, yeah. Philip Leonard was multiculture, yeah. like one person, yeah. you know. I knew, I think, all three black men in Dublin who were sort of my age group at the time, you know, and that was about it. Now it's wonderful. I love it. Yeah. But we're producing young people now who are very different from us, which is wonderful. Yeah. We were very narrow, unfortunately, in our views. We had to learn to broaden mm-hmm. our views. All my kids have views that are just what I became, you might say, after 20 years of a lot of thinking, yeah. a lot of observation. I didn't like the world I grew up in, even though I loved Ireland and I loved the people, I loved everything about it. It was very narrow, it was very mm-hmm. hostile. It was a very hostile place for my mother, who wasn't a single woman, but she was uh, left by her husband, so technically she was on her own. And it was always the danger that uh, I could be put into social services, I could be taken away, but I had very strong aunts and my granny would have killed anybody who came near me. (laughs) But I was protected. But the modern Ireland we live in, I think, is a much safer place for people, especially women. Yeah. Women almost have 100% rights. We're still waiting for a couple more. They're on their way. (laughs) My mother ran the risk also of being sort of shunted off, do you know what I mean, when she had me into into one of those institutions, euphemistically called Magdalene Institutions. Uh, And me, you know shunted off God knows where and and what and all the rest of it. But for all of that, I've I've always perceived that we have been a very outward-looking people. I think maybe it's to do with being an island, you know, on the periphery of Europe, that we've been open to embracing external cultural influences. And we have this great generosity of spirit as Irish people as well, and we're quite brave in that way. So I I sort of very much like that about us. I think we've always sort of had that. But I think the church put a lid on it. Yes. And, as, and as its power has dissipated, uh, we, as a people, have emerged in our strengths 
have emerged and we've been able to stand over our values. I think we're kind of like the merchant state of Venice in the golden age, except we're a technological little island, you know. I was trying to say to one of my friends who's who's in Sinn Féin and is really, you know, chest beating about Irish and Irish language and all the rest. I'm like, well, what about Chinese? You know, I'd like to spend four hours a week maybe learning Chinese. And he said, well, you know, if you don't have a language, you won't have a country. And I said, no, I, t- I take issue with that. I speak Irish, but I don't want it to be forced on me. And I'm really happy to speak it. Um, I went to Irish college and did all those nice middle class things when I was a kid. But I think we, we the, the greatness of our culture, as Charles said, is that it's an outward looking culture, not an inward looking culture. Hello, you maybe have a different perspective because you grew up both here and sometime in Sierra Leone. Um, we spent about four years in West Africa when I was in my teens. So the Gambia for two years and then Sierra Leone, which is where my father's from and all that side of my family. But I, certainly I can say my mum is actually mixed race and she grew up in, in a very different Dublin to the one we've kind of come up close to. She's from Crumlin. She grew up around the corner from Phil in it. And uh, she had a very tough time. Uh, Irishness was not necessarily available to her as it was to others. And then so we grew up in Kildare. There were two black families in Maynooth. We were both mixed families and everyone thought we were related. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, it was okay. We actually kind of didn't look so dissimilar. <laughs> so I forgive people that. Same hair and stuff. You know, it, it happens. Um, and we four, only four years later, we came back um, to live in Maynooth in the same house, same school. And then coming home, um, f- having been almost a minority in West Africa as well, because um, people can spot your, your westernness like, 10 miles away <laughs> like there's a westerner who's <laughs> you know striding along um and then to come home it, it was very different because I think today we're grappling with our own identity because Irish history is super complex and we haven't always had a great relationship with foreigners let's be honest we haven't always come off well from those interactions to put it euphemistically so uh, to some extent I can understand um when people feel maybe a little bit protective of their culture and their space that they've you know really worked hard to develop a sense of pride and dignity and that lot that's beautiful and then there's also that line of well how can we welcome and involve other people who also have worked hard to develop a beautiful culture and how where can we mingle where can the two meet particularly on issues that we don't agree on and so in I kind of reintegrating coming from West Africa was interesting because a lot of things um, within me had changed and I had to re-evaluate what it was to be Irish, um, half Irish, half West African. What does that even mean? I mean, does it even matter? Then sometimes, you know, I have a lot of black friends and people will shout stuff at, yeah. at us in the street. I've had stuff shouted at me in the street and I feel really Irish. And then suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm not to that well, person. You know, in some ways I kind of think it's it's become harder because you know, 30 years ago, yes, there was like five black families in the whole right. of Ireland. They were all almost famous and half of them were on TV, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and, and, but, but there was kind of a, a sort of patronizing or innocent sort yeah, of attitude. Oh, well, you know, we have, you know, you're black and you're right. Isn't that great? You're, you know, Phil or whatever. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, there's, you know, whereas now I think, you know, people are, well, I think it might be harder now because people are going to assume you're a recent immigrant and yeah, you, you, you yeah. shout mean things or whatever. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a fear there. Like, what are we standing to lose? What are we going to gain? Yeah. Um, are we safe? It's, I think it always just comes back to our human fears, which we can apply to any area of our life. Mm. You know, you feel protective over your territory because you're afraid you might lose it. So I recognise that. Uh, it is, it's hard when you're on the receiving end of that kind of more ferocious and 
a potentially violent fear that's coming from someone. It's always fear, but um, when it's thrown at you in a more negative way, it's hard. So I always try and kind of take a gentle approach to it and a forgiving one and just understand where everyone's coming from, that we're all learning how to be together and what it means and it sometimes feels like things are changing so quickly that you've just grasped a concept or you've you've just made a new friend who's from somewhere and then you meet someone else and suddenly you're not sure if you're being offensive or you know yes, everyone's confused yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Just... well we have to always be vigilant i think yeah. because if you look at what's happening in post-brexit britain all the mm. in- incredible upsurge in racial hatred yeah. i mean i mean people people in london can't begin to understand it. Mm. Look, um, we have two beautiful musicians here with us today. So, um, Shaz, I'm going to ask you to sing a song. Do you want to tell us a little about oh, it? Yes, or? of course. I'm going to sing When You Are Old, which is a poem by William Butler Yeats. And it was a poem to his great love, Maud Gone. And uh, I took this Yeats poem and I put a, a melody to it. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to perform for you today. And in fact, there's a little bit of a chorus I've added in. So there's a facility for the audience to join in. Yeah, so I'm going to go over to the microphone. Yeah, go over it, yeah. So, what I would like you guys, everybody in the studio to do, is to help me with the chorus. And it would be great if you could join in. Do we have to be good singers? You don't have to be good singers. It's very, very simple, right? I'm going to sing, when I get into the song, I'm going to sing, Away, away, away. And what I would like you to sing is, Ooh. So let's try it. Everybody sing. Ooh. That's, that's it. Everybody got it? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're <laughs> going to go for it now. Oh, well. When you are old and gray and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down the spook and softly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of the shadows deep away 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 So true, but one man loved the pilgrim soul in you, and loved the shadows of your changing face. Away, away, away. Upon the mountains overhead, 
and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. Away, away, away. Ooh, away, away, away. Ooh, away, away, away. Away, 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 and paced upon the mountains overhead, and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. Thank you. Thank you, Shaz. That was beautiful. So beautiful. I'm always jealous of people who can just stand up and, you know, their thing just comes out. You know. Well, I know, I know, I know you've had to work out. <laughs> but you know what I meant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Sinead, we, we're, we're talking there about, you know, uh, you know, things that sort of marked you out, I guess, is different. And you're going, so you, know, you had a hard time in school. So before you went to school, your, your visual impairment was totally natural and, and normal to you. And then you go to school and discover that it's not. And then also discover that other kids, you know, can be horrible and mean. When you're at home and everybody's visually impaired, it just feels like that's the way the world is or whatever. But then when I went to school at um, five or six and around six years of age, I started realising quite quickly that I was different. I was in a primary school of 450 uh, girls and um, I was the only person with a, uh, any visible type of disability. So, yeah, that was quite difficult. And um, to the point where that I got... I suppose we can all develop strategies in life to help us overcome difficulties. And I put a strategy in place and my strategy was that even though I loved food, it kind of went from bulimic to then um, not eating. And then so that strategy worked out quite well to the point I ended up in hospital. And the doctor said to my parents, if you've never prayed for your daughter, you need to pray for her now. She's dangerously ill. That's how bad my bullying got that I just didn't want to live. That's how bad it got. And today you you still have kind of flashbacks of that. It never really goes away. And I suppose when you were talking there earlier about doing what you really like, I'm now a PhD researcher um, studying the area of bullying. So a teacher's legal duty of care inside and outside of school. But I, some days I do find the PhD difficult because having a visual impairment and then you have to read loads of books, that is difficult. <laughs> so then you have to say to yourself, right, well, why am I doing this? And I'm <clears throat> passionate about the area. So that's why mm. I'm doing it. Well, because what you actually did was after school, you became a lawyer. Yeah, solicitor. Yeah, solicitor. Yeah, so um, my careers advisor teacher told me at 17, um, I told her that I wanted to study law and she was very... Very clear, look, don't go down that route. You won't be able for it. It's a reading-based subject. She was very serious that, no, do not go down this route. But anyway, so I said, right, well, you're saying I can't do it, so I will do it. So I went on and I got my law degree. I got my master's in law and then qualified as solicitor in 2009. First visually impaired solicitor in Ireland. 
Mm. It wasn't all very easy because in second year in college, um, you'd have people come up to you and they'd like, um, you'd ask them for help or whatever. And before you're in trying to ask them for help, they'd start speaking really slowly to you. (laughs) (laughs) um, Can... I help you. And then I, I say, I'd be like standing there, right? Will I use very long words now and kind of just put them down that way? Or will I just smile politely? Or um, so. so you then got into m- running marathons and ultra marathons and... Uh, you you know you have to have a guide runner and then you yeah. sort of use your law background to sort of force some r- races to change the rules to allow a man to run because yeah. you couldn't have your, your your guide runner who's here John is here He's in the audience there hi John and the audience <laughs> because some races wouldn't allow you to have your guide runner because he's male with you yeah. so so you had to sort of go to bat for that as well and you and John have a big sort of project on the go do you want to tell yeah us about so that um i suppose i'm always trying to set the bar higher and higher and um uh, J- J- john last year said to me oh well h- what would you like to do now and then i said oh you're very well, good john <laughs> what would you like to do now <laughs> so uh we came up with the plan that we do seven marathons seven continents in seven days so because <laughs> i like to set the bar higher enough and um if i do it which is all dependent on sponsorship because it'll take eighty thousand to do it so it's not cheap um i'll be the first blind person worldwide to do it so i'll be setting a guinness record that way there's 286 million blind people so i want to fly the flag of ireland and bring it to ireland and then i'll also be the first irish female to complete it john do you ever just sort of think oh god she's so annoying (laughs) you know you know when i asked you what do you want to do next i meant you know do you want a cup of tea (laughs) yeah Um, how, how did you get involved with the guide running? Uh, about 20 years ago, I did a race across the Sahara Desert. And the, f- the year after that, I met up with Mark Pollock, who was planning a similar race. Ah, yes, he's, he's been on the show, I did, Mark. I gave Mark some assistance, uh, trained with Mark, and helped him with his, with his uh, preparation for a race in the Gobi Desert. When he came back from that, the two of us kind of joined up. We started training together. I became Mark's guide. Went to the North Pole with Mark in 2004. Went to Mount Everest, the Dead Sea, and a few other races. So it was, it was through my dealings with Mark Pollock that I suppose Sinead knew of me being a guide runner. Okay. It seems like a very sort of, I don't know, selfless thing. Like you have to put your own ambitions aside really to help, you know, somebody else achieve theirs. Is that how you see it? Or is it like a team? It's like a tandem? Well, I, I see it as a way of giving something back because I didn't get to where I am in my sport uh, without the assistance of other people, yeah. you know, asking questions and you know, relying on other people to help me with training, answer questions. Mm. So it really is just a way of giving something back. So you, you can help a hundred people, you know, yeah. for every one person that, that helps you. In terms of a challenge, I said to John, we'd do a race and that I would guide run for him, but he wasn't really too open to that. <laughs> you could echolocate. <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, I, I kind of feel like I've lots in common with different people on this panel. And um, it, with Jim, with you, we, we're both uh, admirers of Roger Casement. Now, oh, now I, It's obvious why I might like Roger Casement. <laughs> um, but how, what, what's your sort of fascination with him? In 1965, I was working in advertising and Roy Jenkins was kind enough to repatriate the remains of Roger Casement to Dublin. Uh, my mother, being of that persuasion, uh, her heroes of that era would have been Countess Markovich and Roger Casement because they were kind of posh. 
Yeah, so, well, because that's part of the interesting thing about him. He was, you know, as British as British could be. He was a knight really. of the empire. Yeah. And I always even title him Sir Roger Casement. I feel they robbed him of his title. We should give mm. it back to him. You know, mm. he'd like that. And he wore lovely sweaters, those cream <laughs> yeah. sweaters. He was, a wonderful he was very handsome. Gorgeous leather jackets. Yeah. Yeah. Very handsome man. And what they did to him in the trial was despicable because he was one of these men who really looked after himself, as you can see from any photograph. Mm. And they refused him uh, to allow him wash. He was covered in lice and he had to defend himself against these outrageous charges. Uh, he was obviously gay and they used his gayness to kill him. Yeah. He was murdered because he was gay, not because he fought so much for Irish nationalism or went over to the Germans to get help. But he was also the greatest human rights fighter in history. He was the first great human rights campaigner. He went to the Congo, where he exposed the atrocities of King Leopold and his gougers. He went up the Amazon and exposed the atrocities of the rubber planters. Rape, murder, mutilation was the order of the day. And he was knighted for his efforts. But then when he decided to throw his lot in with Irish nationalism, they degraded him in a way. Imagine the leaders of 1916. They were all put up against the wall. Connolly was shot in in his uh, chair. But they got noble deaths, if you want to call it that. They didn't do that with Casement. They degraded him, denigrated him, and they destroyed him. But I've always felt a great affinity with Casement for some reason. I'm straight. doesn't matter if he's gay or not. I couldn't care less. To me, he was the greatest Irishman always because of achievements before the revolution and then during the rising. And what he tried to do was quite extraordinary. But I think in the end, nobility of his sacrifice brought home to Irish people something extraordinary. And when his funeral occurred, over 100,000 Dubliners turned up. We empathise with this man for some reason unbeknownst to us. And I think it's the sympathy of what they did to him, rather than the way the others, you know, you can call it a noble death being shot in the head, but it's better than what happened to him any day of the week. So I regard him as the greatest Irishman who ever lived. Yeah, it's funny because I think one of the things we did well in the 1916 commemorations was in a, in a way to give Casement back some of that. Oh, absolutely. Because I think he's, he was very much written Wonderful. out of things for a long time. Yeah. So I was really glad this year to see him being talked about as well. And he, he converted to Catholicism and learned the Irish language. I mean, he decided absolutely. to really throw himself into it. You know, of course, obviously, I have the gay connection with him. So, oh, you know, yes. I always, you know, I sort of saw it through that lens. If there should be a symbol from the, for the new Ireland, it should be Casement. Well, it always annoyed me when people tried to suggest, you know, that he wasn't gay. Because I, you know, I felt like you were trying to erase something, you know, um, and uh, I think any gay person who reads the diaries will say he was gay. And <laughs> 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 um, Viv, you then, because your next project, your next film is set during the War of Independence, is that right? Um, yes, the next project is set in deep west Cork land of the ancestors, right? It's, it's kind of loosely based on the story of my grandmother and her three sisters. And my great-grandfather, their father of these four girls, was a, was a pacifist and had thought that the war was all terrible and was, was a merchant of uh, honey and eggs and butter and used to provision uh, the, the British garrisons along the road. And in doing that, he would meet the quartermasters in the, um, in the different garrisons and befriended them. 
And but the, all the time he had Tom Barry's column living in the backyard of his house up in the valley and nobody ever approached him because they thought he was as clean as a whistle. So when his daughter would come back, she was a science teacher in Cork, Cork uh, City at the time and she would get on the train in Cork City and go out to Bantry with a little school satchel and it would have everything that Broy had given Michael Collins of what the troop movements were going to be in the Black and Tans during the war and she would bring them out and give them to Tom Barry and his commanders and they'd then try and set ambush bushes and most of the time my grandfather would be telling both sides to go in different directions you know to try and avoid them killing each other because he thought all of these young men I mean Tom Barry himself had been in the trenches and in the Battle of the Somme and in World War One and now he came back and things were pretty bad in Ireland and so within two years he was you know leading an IRA battalion in West Cork and it was a horrendous war. It's interesting you say that they'd been in the trenches and all because Shaz this Totally, when I was looking at, you know, reading about you there. God, what are you um, going to say? Well, 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 <laughs> well you know, um, I remember a few years ago, you know, mm-hmm. I would see you singing around a lot. And then, and then you kind of moved away from that yes, for a while. Yeah. Or, um, and I think the business side of it, you know, mm-hmm. as Vivian was complaining about earlier. It's before particularly we started, torturous. Yes, is, yeah. and the business side of the yeah. music industry sort of, you know, annoyed you. Mm-hmm. And you sort of put it aside for a while. But... You've been writing monologues or vignettes I have, about yeah, the I, World I become, War One. Well, yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, it's an ongoing project at the moment, but I've become obsessed with Passchendaele. Uh, the Battle of the Anniversary is next year, uh, 1917, and World War One and trench warfare generally. And uh, one day, I mean, I, I had stopped singing. I'd taken a little break, a backseat, to try and just, you know, reflect uh, on myself. And then this character sort of just walked into my head, this guy who was at Passchendaele. I don't know why. <laughs> but that that was it that's how it started and i started to really research i don't know with a vengeance i just i just became obsessed with with trench warfare and world war 1 and you know what was going on and the and the sorts of relationships people had in those situations you know, like, were there any women at the front? Was, was it all men? What jobs did they do? What backgrounds they came from? And, you know, this, this idea of six degrees of separation between people. So I started to write a series of monologues with, with these various different characters, some female, some male. And I suppose Passchendaele is the, is the initial common thread. And then I, I sort of draw it out a bit more. But now that you mention it, and as Vivian mentioned, the black and tans, I remember my own grandmother talking about the black and tans. Now, she would have been a very small child at the time, but she grew up in Kilmainham, and they would have to blacken out their windows in their little rows of cottages. You know, uh, they were sort of terrified of sort of trouble and, and all of that sort of thing. I also want to tie back in with case, and of course, you're, you're a proud gay woman. Um, um, yeah, well, I'm a lesbian, actually. Yes, yes, a lesbian, yes. Yeah. And also, what we yeah. would say in the community, you would say you're a butch lesbian. I'm a and, butch dyke, actually. Yeah, yes, and, um, <laughs> and most of my favourite people in the world are butch dykes yeah oh um, okay i have like a small you know notebook of them whenever something goes wrong <laughs> and there's something i know i'm in trouble i know i can call a b or c yeah. and they will sort yeah. it out okay and um, so i don't know where i'd be in my life personally or professionally yeah. without a number of um, bush dykes well that's um, interesting because i don't know where i'd be without gay men you see I because you know gay- each other so yeah. well. Like, we're just this thing you know i worry you know that, that, that and the butch dykery if i can put it that way yeah. 
has um, <laughs> it, it, it's fading in popularity it these is. days. And I'm like, oh my god, I don't want to live yeah. in a world without loads we're of an endangered, We're an endangered species. Vivian, yes. there's your new film. Why is it fading in popularity? This is a travesty. I think it's something to do with, I mean, I think it's, that's a complicated question, but I think there's a number of issues. One is to do with the sort of the mainstreaming or, you know, the more... Yeah, there's the mainstreaming of lesbian and gay yeah. culture. And, and, and also just, I think, with youth coming through today, yes. they don't have the same pressures. They're not so much on the outskirts. Yes. So they, they want to be like their peers. Yes, and, they and they're not be, reacting against something re- so much. As reactive. And yeah, they're maybe I not find. also as feministly aware it was a part of the thing because that was part of it too and also I would say also as trans issues have become more known about and more talked about and all of that that I think a lot of younger people you know that's their go-to in, in a way it is um, they gravitate towards that that trans yes, area yes. but no I, I identify as a butch lesbian as butch like but I also I, I'm, I'm increasingly tend to identify as being queer yeah. and I'm interested in the whole idea of sort of queer politics and queer culture yeah. and what I mean by queer is not so much to do with your sexual orientation but taking into account your sexual identity, but more of an openness around, you know, not being doggedly genderized. Yeah. You know, this idea that we have in society that everything is so genderized. And I think yep. that's a that's also a problem for a lot of young girls coming up today. I mm-hmm. mean, when I, I was a kid, I was a tomboy. I was sort of born political. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I mean, I, I fought my way through the North Wall because I realized yep. as a child that my childhood was going to kill me or cure me. Yeah. So I was always you know, handy with my fists. Mm. But myself and all of my friends, we weren't put in, you know, pink dresses yes. and, you know, pink shoes and sparkly outfits. Mm. And we ran around scutting on trucks yeah. and, you know, blowing up things. And we, we just... You were an absolute gurrier, in other words. <laughs> we, we did all that sort of thing. But today I notice with, with a lot of uh, peers of mine and their, their children, in terms of what they dress them in, they're fairly restricted in terms of the clothes mm. when they go into stores to buy them. The clothes are all very, you know, girly colours, girly clothes. Yeah. And, and right from the get-go, even toys yeah. for children, toys for boys, to, it's becoming very generalised. Which I'm is very, the fault of Jim's old profession. Very concerned about Because that. you can sell two, you know, a blue one and a pink uh, one, not just... <laughs> I'm always telling my daughter not to be wearing high heels to concerts and I want to know how you guys, like you, Panty, do you feel comfortable in high heels? Because I find them absolute torture and I have this kind of very straight, you know, middle class creative person <laughs> that I just think we should be able to wear comfortable shoes and still look good you know but anyway. well, well what I want is I want everybody just to have the options you know yes, everybody of course to we have, the options. have options so you but know do you find if, them if comfortable? a woman wants to dress comfortable she should be allowed to do that well, and I never I never saw my mother without yeah. highest heels in history amazing, and yeah. she could walk perfectly in them but, I, but, but you but, can but walk I, but perfectly I tell you, in them you've they, got they still hurt posture. her after a while she just didn't allow anyone to see the, the hurt or the pain does that mean they do hurt you yes they do yeah after a while I mean okay. you get better at it but whatever. you've got very very beautiful posture you've got very elegant well I'm lucky because so I can take it all off well. and then schlep around yeah. in a pair of boots and nobody's going to you yes. know, think anything it's amazing how many women walk around all day long in high heels even in shops I mean I don't know how they do it well it's funny I used to live in Japan and I always think that's a very cultural difference there. You know, American women or Western women, they would, you know, wear their runners to work and then put their high heels in the office because that was a career move. Whereas in Japan, they wear their high heels to work and then put their slippers on in the office. Because Japanese women don't expect that they're going to have a career. They're only there until they get married. Oh, wow. You know, so it's more important to look good on the street because you might you know, meet the man of your dreams between the train station and the office. Anyway, the reason I brought up your butchness oh, <laughs> wasn't, yes, just, wasn't just <laughs> randomly. But it's another thing that sort of marked you out uh, mm. as, as different when you were, you were younger. And, oh, sure. I mean, you sort of alluded to it already that you had to be 
pretty hard. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know at what point I realized that I was uh, that I was a young dyke. Oh, why? Well, I sort of. I think there were there were inklings of it because I remember my mother was very young when she had me. She was nineteen, and she had a thing for Elvis. And then she'd put on on, a, on an old record player an Elvis record, and you know she'd be there dancing around. Dun, 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 dun. So I'd get up beside her, and we'd both be dancing around. Dun, 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 dun. But the thing was. There was, an, there was an Elvis movie on the telly. I, I have a re- vague recollection of that. And Anne-Margaret was dancing Viva with Las Elvis. Vegas. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And there was Anne-Margaret looking fantastic. I mean, it was all sort of, you know, hips and ass and, you know, the whole, the red hair and the whole nine yards. So I got up to dance with my mother and my mother was there, you know, drawn to Elvis. And of course, she didn't realize that the four-year-old <laughs> beside her was sort of drawn to Anne-Margaret. I was at home in Ballinrobe Ball- you know? <laughs> County, May, also drawn to Anne-Margaret. <laughs> Well, let's bring this back to music because we have Loa here. Um, now, last time I saw you, Loa, you, we were both performing at a gig in New York for the Irish Arts Centre and yep. you absolutely blew my mind. Um, so I'm thrilled that you're here today and Loa, you're going to play us out, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to tell us what you're going to do for us? Yeah, well, this next song ties in perfectly with our subject. Um, I think even for the heteros, um, gender genderizing can be a real interesting subject. And for me, um, it, going from a very like professional scientific career, which is actually in in terms of the energy you have to bring, it's it can be quite masculine a lot of the time. Um, I had to kind of come back the other way to accepting being a, a woman and actually how to operate in a really tough masculine business with, um, I would say, you know, the more feminine qualities that everyone should embody all, at all times, like um, acceptance, uh, which I consider a feminine quality and <laughs> gentleness and compassion and apply that to yourself as a, as a writer, as a creative, as a person, apply that to the people you're working with and even your competition. Um, so this song um, is called and I wrote it for a friend of mine whose mother passed away of cancer and uh, one of the remarkable things he said to me in the, around the time of her death was I never realised that she just he's just got two brothers and the dad and she just made us all feel okay all the time so much so that we didn't even notice and we didn't even communicate with each other because she was our gel and we made sense through her energy and we didn't even know we never and she never asked us to appreciate her she just did it and she gave herself completely and and now she's gone and we never we never realized and he has had this profound acceptance and appreciation for that feminine energy that had sustained his his whole family his whole life and the song is called cortege but it's not all it's not in english it's not in english it's in my grandfather's uh, native language which is shabro uh, which is from an island off the coast of sierra leone which is about the size of ackle and equally as wild <laughs> and the yeah it's uh and my auntie translated a poem i wrote in english into shabro and there's a little bit of mende as well which is another language of my dad's uh, uh, west africans are all polyglots africans in general you uh, nobody speaks one language everyone communicates in about four different tongues and you're going to be accompanied i'm going to be accompanied by barry who on double bass and scott coleman on guitar thank you, thank you.
gorgeous. Thank you, Lua. Accompanied by Barry Donahue and Scott Coleman, and well done on the language use there, boys. <laughs> I thought you were Sierra Leonean myself. Um, well, that's all from this episode of Pentasoxy. I'd like to thank our audience for being so lovely and giving and wonderful for coming along here. Thanks to my guests, we Jim Fitzpatrick, Viv DeCourcy, the beautiful Shaz, my new lover, um, Sinead Gain, and of course, Loa. Um, you can listen back to all of the episodes on the RT website, on the podcast, and you can follow us on social media using the hashtag Pantasocracy. Next week, we'll have, among others, uh, children's writer Siobhan Parkinson and the psychologist Tony Bates. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>